Hi, and welcome to Hyperfixations, the podcast where we invite various interesting people on to talk about their special interests that they could just talk forever about. Here are your hosts. I'm Ali. And I'm Nigel. And today we have Ellen. Ellen, hi, how are you? Hi, thank you for having me. Thanks for being on. <laughs> and today <laughs> um, you are here to talk to us about? Vampires, my favourite subject. <laughs> um, yes, I'm you very saying, excited. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, go on, Nigel. Oh no, I was just going to say, you were saying beforehand, um, like, as you know, or, you know, like, as you know, I love talking about vampires, and I didn't know this, so I'm really excited to get into this now as well. Uh, <laughs> oh, wonderful! Oh, Ali is definitely sick of hearing me talk about vampires, because I think it was, was it earlier this year or last year you read Dracula, and I was constantly texting you saying, what part are you at? What happened? Yeah, like, what happened next week? Oh, I, 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 <laughs> I missed, I missed. the lesbian subtext. I miss, I miss that, I miss that. So, yeah. obviously you're very into, interested in vampires, like, um, tell us a bit more about, like, what made you decide to pick, um, vampires as your topic for this episode. Well, um, I saw that you had other topics, like fashion history and some other ones I was interested in, but I was like, if there's a vampire, uh, subject going, it should be me, because I have <laughs> been obsessed with vampires since I was about, my god, I think like 10? No. No, it has to be like 8 years old because Twilight came out in 2008, the movie, and I was obsessed. I was so obsessed. I was a really annoying teenage girl obsessed with Twilight. <laughs> and then I went to the library and I picked up a copy of Dracula and I got even more obsessed. <laughs> I actually, uh, we had creative writing class in primary school and I wrote Dracula fan fiction and read it out to the class. And they, they were very appreciative of it. My teachers weren't, but <laughs> the class found it entertaining. Um, so yeah, if there's a vampire episode going, I should be the one to do it. <laughs> I love, I love the tradition of just it, it, young children writing vampire um, fan fiction. In class, because I did that as well. <laughs> did you? Oh my god! I'm pretty yeah. sure that I, I'm pretty sure that I did as well. Like, if not for class, like I definitely did it. Like in my free time, like we all live the same life. Oh, we mine, we all do. <laughs> mine was a bit fucked up though because I decided that in fifth class I would write really long for the time, which would be like ten page short stories for English class. And the villain in all of them was um, our teacher, who was a bald man <laughs> called Pat Murta. Um, we got on really well, so he thought this was charming instead of worrying. Um, but then he told us we were going to go on like a three-day trip to Bolton Glass in Wicklow, and I was like, what if I write a story about that? And so I wrote it like, we go there, and there's vampires, and they brutally start picking the people in my class off one by one. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. You should turn and that I'm... into a movie. Because there's, yeah. there's very few Irish slasher movies. That would be a perfect Irish slasher mm. movie. I don't have the original draft anymore, unfortunately. <laughs> but it's so funny to me because then I was like, oh yeah, now I have to actually go to this place and look at the people I wrote about <laughs> as being vampires uh... dead in the eye and be like, yeah, I want to do abseiling. See, yeah. I feel so much more normal right now because I just wrote like my own version of Dracula where it was like everything was more dramatic, <laughs> which that could be possible. And Dracula. <laughs> yeah, I wrote. Um, I don't know if you've you've also read Dracula. Have you, Nigel? 
Uh, yeah. But okay. not in a long while. Okay, well, there, there was a bit um, in the book uh, where the captain is uh, on the ship and everyone starts dying slowly. Oh, similar to yours, actually. Maybe we just have a thing for, like, picking people off one by one. But I wrote about Dracula being on the ship and, like, slowly starting to eat the sailors. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, perfectly normal for a nine-year-old to be writing that, I'm sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's always... It's always the experience of like having a story to write for like a classroom assignment and then like your parents like taking a look at it and just being like, maybe revise this before you like read it out in front of your 10 year old classmate. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. And I I really am not sure what, what it is about the vampires that I love so much. I think it might be just because they're the only monsters who, you know, you can imagine wearing cufflinks and a dress shirt. And I find that very, um, very elegant. <laughs> very attractive. I don't know. The Invisible Man could be wearing um, cufflinks and a dress shirt. I mean, we just never know. We'd never know. That's the thing. Nothing. He could be wearing nothing. We would have no way of knowing. We would have yeah. no way of knowing. That would make social situations very awkward. Yeah. That, that is very true. <laughs> Although I will say, just... Any and all of the fanfiction we did write at ages like 9 through 11 about vampires is still 100%, a thousand million percent better than the Stephen Moffat, Mark Gatiss uh, Dracula adaptation for BBC, because fuck Don't. that show. Don't even start me. That was so bad. Okay, I loved Sister Agatha. Sister Agatha was fantastic, but I couldn't get past, I think it was like the second episode, because I was like, this is not Dracula. Uh, Stephen Moffat... Is- yeah, this is Sherlock with vampires. <laughs> exactly. And I didn't this is scandalous, but I didn't even really like Sherlock. <laughs> I had um I had Rice. <laughs> I didn't even <laughs> like him. Because he was so I don't know. There's just something about a man who thinks he's smarter than everybody around him and like dresses a bit ridiculously. That reminds me an awful lot of <laughs> um, some people I went to school with. And kind of makes me want to stab them. So yeah, that murder's already been solved before it happened. <laughs> because I'm yeah, like, the world. For legal re- for legal reasons, this is all this is all a joke. But yeah, I've never <laughs> seen the I've never seen the BBC adaptation. But I've noticed that in general, BBC ad- like from what I've seen, BBC adaptations of like TV adaptations of books and. Or like things like there was one of like the Canterbury Tales. They all seem to be a bit horrendous. Yeah, um, I, I disagree in the context of the BBC Pride and Prejudice, which is flawless and incredible. Okay, fair, fair enough. And, do fair. and you should watch it at least three times a week. I know it's five hours, but that's no excuse. Yeah, just, yeah, just you like, gotta get it in. Yeah, you have. How many hours are there in a week? I don't know. Ten. I don't know. I, I I can't even count on like I have to 15. use my fingers to count. So more oh, yeah. more than two, less than like forty million. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm trying so hard not to make a count on count joke because I know you will call me. You got you got it. You got it. Yeah. One just... shitty BBC adaptation. Ah ah ah. And that's all we have time for, folks. Many thanks to Ellen for coming on. (laughs) They just staked me. They staked me through the heart. You can't see, but there's blood everywhere. It's a nightmare. Yeah, sorry, we've been exposed. (laughs) You've mentioned um, 
Twilight, Dracula, um, like all these things. Like, do you have a favorite vampire work? Like, and has that changed over the years? That is such a wonderful question because I do, and yes, it has. Um, so my favorite um, adaptation, sorry, my favorite, well, story about a vampire or favorite vampire would have to be Carmilla because I adore oh. that book. I really do. Um, and I also, when I was a teenager, um, <laughs> repressed Irish Catholic teenager, I was very, <laughs> very obsessed with the, um, the miniseries on YouTube. And it is, it is amazing. There's also a film out now and they might be making it into a TV show. But yes, Car- Carmilla, absolutely my favorite. Um, and it has changed over the years because uh, I, for, for a long time, Dracula would have been my favorite, um, which is very boring, I know. Um, but I suppose maybe recently as well, I've been enjoying um, uh, Angela Carter's book, uh, The Bloody Chamber, and there's a wonderful vampire story in that as well called The Lady of the House of Love. And I suppose mm-hmm. that and Carmilla, my two favorite vampires. Talk to me a bit about Carmilla then. Okay, well, where do I even start? <laughs> um, Carmilla is the story of um, a girl called Laura, who is uh, she's she's older now and she's looking back on her life and she's telling the story to um, a, a scientist or slash. Uh, investigator of the supernatural who has a case book and he's writing down her story and she's recalling it from memory sort of like Rose and Titanic uh, mm-hmm. but is she changing things is she making things less gay than they really are we don't know and I love that ambiguity but so the story that she reflects on is of when she was a young girl in Aust- I think it's Styria or Austria um, in the this the book came out I think where where was it I have it in my notes I think it was 1872 the book came out 26 years before Dracula and uh, it's written by an Irish author as well we have a long tradition of uh, fantastic Irish vampires and very cool but Laura is very lonely and very isolated because her father is a super rich um, nobleman. They live in a castle. It couldn't get more gothic, but she has no friends. And she has a governess who she can talk to, but she doesn't have anyone she can relate to around her. And she's very much cut off from the whole world. Her father controls her education. Her father controls what books she reads. He controls... Um, all the access to information she has she's very very closeted she she says at the start of the story he doesn't even allow her to read fairy tales because he's afraid she'll get nightmares um so so she has she's she's incredibly naive and innocent which is kind of why the story works i think Mm, because you as the reader are like clearly something is going on here clearly there's a vampire in the story but laura has no clue because she, because of the patriarchy basically she, she <laughs> doesn't have information that she needs what a strange concept <laughs> hello sex education in ireland um yeah pretty much <laughs> pretty much so uh, the story kicks off when a mysterious uh, young woman arrives at the castle and they take her in um to take care of her and she kind of starts 
uh, flirting with Laura and they become very close friends. In the 1800s, there was sort of a trend for passionate friendships. So it would be like uh, women would have very close attachments. They might sleep in the same bed. They might call each other <laughs> wife. Um, it was completely seen as a not gay thing. It was seen as preparation for marriage. And um, it was it was also pretty much accepted that women would be very passionate towards each other. And some in definitely in some cases, it was platonic, completely platonic. But in some cases, you have to wonder, you know, was there something more going on? But of course, we'll never mm. know because they would have burned the romantic letters they would have sent. They would have lost the correspondence there. But there are, you know, cases of history where what we thought were passionate friendships um, they have discovered documents and it turns out that they were lovers. So again, uh, there's that ambiguity in the story of Carmela. But uh, Laura, when she's telling the story, says, oh no, I was repulsed. I was frightened when she talked to me of caressing me and I was frightened when she was like gazing into my eyes. But then she mm. also describes her as exquisitely beautiful and like soft skin and long silky hair. And it's like very, there, there's, there's something going on there, some con conflict. Um, but like historians will say they were great friends. Historians will say they were just gal pals. They were just pals being <laughs> gals. Um, exactly. But, <laughs> exactly. But the thing that I really love about the story of Carmilla is Carmilla is not just a one-dimensional female predator. Do you know there's there's kind of a thing in lesbian circles where <laughs> girls who grow up bi or pan or lesbian they can be seen or be sort of bullied for being like uh, seen as like predators. You know, like yeah, it's, yeah. it's always that thing. Like I remember being in primary school and then being like, ugh, uh, should you even be in the locker room? You know, <laughs> it, it's, it's something a lot of girls grew up with. But Carmilla yeah. could very easily, because of the nature of her character, be seen as a one-dimensional evil female predator. And in some cases she is, because she does prey on women. Um, she does prey on vulnerable women. And but for for her, she's also conflicted about it. She also has a great inner depth. She cries when she sees a funeral because she's like, why do people have to die? She says that girls can kind of only really live after death. That they can, it, when they're alive, they're like caterpillars but when they die, they become butterflies. And she can understand oh. the depth of her victims. She understands them as people, um, in some cases more than others, because it's there's a big uh, sort of class difference. So for the young, for the girls that she preys on who kind of die off screen, those women are all peasant women. They're the wives of farmers that she has seduced. They are, um, they're, yeah, they're just peasants. And she doesn't really see them as much as people. But in the romantic friendships that she has with Laura and it's applied with other women throughout the story, she does have sort of a sympathy for them. And she does kind of feel pain. And it's almost implied in the story that she wanted Laura to become a vampire with her. Yeah. So yeah. I, I find that depth very, very intriguing. I'm sorry that was such a long winded answer. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. Um, oh, so... I... oh, no, sorry. No, no, you go ahead. I was just going to say, I feel like, it, you know, 
Pramila does warrant like a longer discussion because even though it was written before Dracula, um, Dracula kind of takes pride of place as the archetypical vampire story when really, you know, kind of fuck Dracula at the same time. <laughs> it's like, I always, it's so yeah. sexist. Well, the thing is, Carmilla does have problematic elements. And I've never yeah. read Carmilla. It, it, I'm just it does aware definitely have. Yeah, it has. It definitely has very problematic elements because it was written by what we assume is a straight white man in the Victorian era, and <laughs> from the way it could be perceived is very lesbophobic. It could be seen as very racist because there's a part in the story where you know um, there's a, a, a character who's supposed to be red or I suppose coded as evil, and we know this because there's a black woman in her carriage who looks a bit scary. Um, mm. So there's, do- there's there's dodgy aspects to Carmilla, a hundred percent. Jesus, I did not know it can, this. It it can be read in many different ways. But I find the core story so interesting. Um, but I completely agree with what you're saying, you know, fuck Dracula. Because to me, Dracula can be read in so many different ways. You know, there's the on the surface story, which is, you know, the, the women in Dracula become become e- become evil when they're sexy and sexy when they're evil. Because it's yeah, when they yeah. are bitten by the vampires that they start being like oh Jonathan seduce me but also I think Dracula can be read as a tale about um sort of consent and about what happens when a woman's consent is sort of betrayed and it can also be read as you know um the story of like women kind of finding their own voice and their own power and to me, that scene in the story where uh, Lucy, the part of the story where Lucy, who is a very sweet, very gentle girl, she is kind of almost in a polyamorous relationship because she has she's three suitors and she all she said literally in the story, I wish I could just marry them all. I don't understand why I could just marry them all. It would be so much easier. Um, and she chooses to marry, Ar- I think it's Arthur, she chooses to marry in the end. There's also one of her suitors is a cowboy who's amazing. I love him. He's from Texas. It's like, you don't expect mm. there to be a cowboy in Dracula, but he's there. Um, he's the and- <laughs> Yes. Um, and so she, she, she has that sort of um, confidence in herself to, you know, she, she's being wooed by men. She's very popular. She's very attractive. But she, as a person... She she's very private in her sexuality and she is very, you know, she, she's kind of in charge of it because ultimately it's her who makes the decision who she marries, not her family, not anyone else. She decides, I want Arthur, so I'll have Arthur. And she yeah. she had cho- she had choice. It's very clear in the novel. She had choice between three different men. So she is quite an empowered person, even though she is quite reserved and quite sweet and quite gentle in character. But when Dracula bites her, and infects her and you know like physically attacks her it's then that she um her 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 body's like invaded by the demon of dracula and it's then that she kind of loses autonomy dracula takes over and that's when she becomes overly sexual and that's when she becomes you know like out of control and very much like what a man's idea of what a woman should be 
it, it was that's quite a crude way to put it, but that's the best way I can yeah, describe yeah. it. Um, mm. She, instead of you know loving children, she becomes extremely cruel towards children and bites them and tries to kidnap them um, to drink their blood. And maybe that could be read as either, oh, herder sexy is bad, um, and she should have stayed, you know, virginal and pure and sweet. Or it could also be read as Dracula has literally forced her to become his plaything and she's lost her autonomy. And then when in the story, spoiler alert, when she's uh, she's staked and she she's she's killed, that's when her face becomes her face again. And she retains her her innocence, she retains her kind of personality, and they see that she's at peace. So I'm sorry, this is again very long-winded. Ellen, I'd like to ask a question, and, and please feel free to say no to this question, okay? Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, do I have your permission to bring up BBC's Dracula? You you did, you did already, didn't you? Again, I mean. Again. <laughs> do it again, do it again. Do it again, hit me again. Okay, no, because it was one of the things that I was interested to see, because uh, have you seen all of I haven't seen I haven't seen all of it. I turned it off after episode two because I physically oh, yes. could not stand anymore. Um, okay. so the, the Moffat it... Stephen Moffat, is that his name? Yes. yes. Uh one day we will we will have a duel to the death and I'll win. Because I can guarantee yeah. that man that man has no upper body strength. Yeah. So I think it's at the end of episode two. If not, then it's like the very beginning of episode three. But no, I think it's at the end of episode two, where he gets up out of the water after the Demeter sinks. And it's revealed, oh, it's now in present day, instead of, like, contemporary Victorian-ish London. Um, mm. And so that was one of the things I was really interested to see, like, going off the back of your discussion on how Dracula can be read as, you know, sort of a tale about consent and how women are perceived and preyed upon by powerful men. And they, they handle it so dreadfully in it because they really do they really do address um, well I say address in the sense that they bring it up and they kind of just go oh we're not dealing with that in episode three you know mm. like I don't want to get overly um, heavy with the subject matter but they really do nothing with it and if they had done that it would like kind of redeem because it, it really makes no sense them to put Dracula in modern times if they're not going to try and address some of the stuff because like as well vampires are are historically like really kind of sexy mythologized figures and we talked about this yeah. a bit with Sam um, on the episode on Pearl Jam how there's always kind of like a seductiveness to the evil nature of things like with you know vampires and demons and blah 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 so it would have been interesting to see um I guess, I guess, like, even if you haven't seen it, um, you know, do you have any thoughts on that? Um, I haven't actually seen that, uh, that, that part of it. I think I've only seen maybe, again, one or, one or two episodes, um, and I turned it off at the bit where Dracula was at the nunnery, because, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was weird. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yes, um, I think you're right. It would be very interesting to see Dracula done in modern times, but modernized and I think definitely the aspects of the story that deal with consent, deal with female autonomy would be 
very interesting to discuss nowadays because the book itself is very rooted in a time period. You know, um, uh, when you see the character of Mina, I don't know how she comes across in the BBC version because I didn't get that far. But Mina was... Okay. Because the way I see Mina, at least, is very much a, a ty- a, almost a caricature of the uh, empowered modern woman as seen in 18... What was it? 1897? Dracula was published? I'm not sure. But yeah, something like that. Like she, that. Uh, yeah, she, 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 she's cool. very much the empowered modern woman. She like If she was around in the 80s, she'd be in a business suit. If she was around today, she would be like rocking one of those like cute little uh, knit tops and high-waisted jeans. She was of correct. the moment. She was May of 20, the moment. May 26th, 18... 1897. Mm, yeah. Um, <laughs> I got the date right, thank God. Um, but yes, so Mina was very empowered for the time, you know, and that also contrasts with her and Lucy, uh, because Lucy was seen as kind of more fragile, more delicate, and obviously richer. And in some ways, she was almost could be read as more Catholic. And then Mina was sort of the Protestant, hardworking um, ethics. You know, she was she was modern. She she would have, um, you know, she she was working as a teacher. She, you know, she had her own job. She was well read. And the other thing that I think could be really interesting to translate to modern day, besides, you know, how would Mina be portrayed as a as a modern woman? could be that in some ways i've 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 seen uh dracula described as a sci-fi thriller because or sort of like a high technology thriller because the all the technology in the book was very advanced for the time you know the story um in the story mina uses a typewriter to convey very important information um, the typewriter is very important in the story. The Dr. Seward records himself with, I think, a phonograph and a gramophone, which was like high tech equipment. That was like <laughs> what, what he had a- Apple, Apple, you know, um, the Apple phones, iPhones. It would have been like iPhone, I don't know, 27 or something. I don't know what number <laughs> we're on now because I don't buy Apple because they, they break so easily. Um, but all that technology was so advanced for the for that time. And it was exciting and interesting and new for the readers of the time so that could totally have been an aspect of um of a modern dracula where they figure out okay what's the modern equivalent of a typewriter what's the modern equivalent of recording your voice using a phonograph would it be whatsapp voice messages would it be uh like a a live chat would it be discord you know what we're on right now (laughs) It could be a really interesting way to tell a story because it is an epistolary novel. You know, it's all through letters and diary entries and newspaper clippings. That could bring it into such an interesting space, I suppose. And from what you're what you're saying, it sounds like the BBC didn't really do that. No, they literally have a scene where they've locked Dracula up in a high-tech facility where they can monitor him. And Dracula calls his lawyer... Uh, who is played by <laughs> Mark Gatiss. Um, of Mike course Rock from he Sherlock. is! Who else? Who else? Okay. But here's oh. the thing. Because he somehow... He guessed the Wi-Fi password to the place. And the Wi-Fi password was Dracula! <laughs> <laughs> I 
You physically hurt oh, my God. brain. Um, your brain isn't the only one hurting. Yeah, mine is hurting at this point. It reminds yeah. me yeah. though, I, I saw this um tweet a while back saying like, I know that like the only way to kill like Dracula is like via steak or something, but I really think we should just try like attacking him with a missile on, like a nuclear missile. Like, yeah, I just think that, I, that could that work. Was a, that was an episode of Buffy. You know, there was an episode where um I think this might have been in the tweet as well, so I could be just um, but I, I'm pretty sure there was an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I also adore. And if you wish to ask me questions, you're Fully welcome to. Um, she she was encountering this. Uh, I think it was like a, a, a super powered demon vampire guy who was very like scary and tough looking. And he was like, "No weapon forged can kill me." So she was like, "Huh? Well, a missile launcher isn't actually forged." So <laughs> like made on an assumption <laughs> line. So she just shot him with a missile launcher and he died. It was great. I love those workarounds. Mm, me too. They're they're fun. Yeah, one of oh, the last things I wanted to bring up about, like, Trail of Women and Dracula, it's just, because I haven't read it in a while, but um, a friend of mine, she was reading it, like, last year over the course of quarantine, and she pointed it out to me, um, and I was like, oh yeah, that's a thing, where it's like, you know, they literally congratulate the women and are so shocked on doing basic things like reading the train timetable and knowing <laughs> when the train comes in. They're like, oh my god, well done! Um, mm. The men in that novel god. are... Yeah, they, they can be incredibly paternalistic. And I think that's almost challenged in the story. In, in my interpretation, and it might not be everybody's interpretation, but near the end of the story you know, like what you said, they they kind of have the paternalistic view and they make the decision that they can't trust Mina anymore um, and that they should leave her out of the plan because she's a woman, she should stay at home and be protected and, you know, mm. they all go off to the asylum to uh, to use Renfield, I think it was to use Renfield as bait or or was it they, I, I can't remember <laughs> whether it was they were using Renfield as bait and they went off to the asylum and then I think they went to Dracula's um, London residence, Carfield Manor, and um, he, because they he had lured them out and they were like, oh, Mina will be safe at home. Um, Mina gets attacked by Dracula. She gets viciously attacked by Dracula because they they assumed that she'd be safe at home. And she he took advantage of, of their paternalistic attitudes to prey on her. And then, furthermore in the novel, um, there's the part where she is starting to link minds with Dracula and they again decide, oh, we can't tell her anything. And that kind of goes wrong for them as well because it turns out she can also see into his mind, kind of like Voldemort and Harry Potter, where yeah. she, can, she can read his thoughts and she actually ends up being really valuable. But literally in the book, if they had just listened to Mina and included her in the plans, none of this shit would ever have happened. <laughs> so like, listen to women. Pretty good. It's a pretty good lesson to have, to be honest. Yeah. Just listen to women in general. I feel like things would end a lot easier. Mm, definitely. But you know, there. I mean, it, it could just be my interpretation. You know, as somebody who's you know feminist and somebody who has you know just perceives the world that way. There is a hundred percent interpretations of Dracula where you can be like, this is sexist, that is sexist, 
and mm. and racist or whatever and that can be completely valid because you know there it's victorian literature there is there is no victorian literature i can promise you there is no literature at all in the world that isn't cancelable in some way <laughs> mm, yeah yeah me sure um you mentioned coffee the vampire slayer talk a bit about that i this. did would you, would, I you, did? would you like would you like to yeah. talk a bit about that i would very much what would you like to know because <laughs> i <I'm- laughs> Well, I was I was gonna link into Buffy by saying, um, you know, what are your thoughts maybe on sort of modern interpretations of vampires? To you know, think off of a lot of things we've spoken about. Because I've never seen Buffy, but kind of vampires got a like very big boom around the start of like when films were being made and they got really popular, and then they dropped off the face of the map for a bit. Yeah. In these in popular Western culture. So, what are your thoughts on? you know modern things like Buffy really modern never seen it though okay well how modern can I go because there as modern as you like in the future okay in the future <laughs> times in the times of television well you you have to start with um the 1931 Dracula which was amazing um and is the reason why he walks around in the cape because I'm pretty sure he doesn't have a cape in the book um, but oh. there's there's also so many interesting films. Um, you know, it started with uh, goodness. It started with you know sort of Cita Barra, I suppose, in the 1920s. She had um, she she played the, the original female vamp, which was like a sexy seductress, um, vaguely sort of Eastern European origins or yeah persian origins she she was just a white woman who put on a lot of eyeliner and, and didn't speak so they thought that she was, was from the east which is <laughs> problematic as hell but she was also very interesting because she said um about her movies you know i have um the body of a vampire but the heart and soul of a feminist uh so she was very interesting and her movies i think have inspired our kind of perception of vampires in the future as well um, you know, the kind of sexy seductress thing kind of uh, on screen at least comes from her. Um, and you have as well things like TV shows like Dark Shadows. I haven't seen it, but I love the idea that there was um, a soap opera and it was failing in, I think it was was it the 70s and they decided, how can we fix this? Okay, we'll add a repressed vampire in it and he'll be very romantic and it'll be fantastic and the show took off but in terms of like more modern vampires um there's definitely something to be said for things like Buffy the Vampire Slayer and I suppose maybe what we do in the shadows I love what we do in the shadows is so good Ali was it the it's first a- time you watched it with me yeah, last year yeah, I remember we watched the movie. Year. It, I, I'm, I'm obsessed. I love the movie so much. I haven't nice. seen the series. Nice. It, it is nice. amazing. It is so yeah. funny. But I just realized I the date we're recording this, the new series of what we do in the shadows premieres. <gasps> Woo! That's, that's exciting. That's exciting. I haven't yet seen another, it yet. Yet another entirely planned coincidental. <laughs> <laughs> like we ended up oh releasing our. <laughs> Pearl Jam episode on like the 30th anniversary of their debut album we're like huh how for two of us mm. <laughs> amazing but, um yeah so 
yeah, that that is really cool. Um, but it for for the modern ones, it really um, really takes it to an interesting level nowadays because it's almost like it's not enough to just have a vampire in a story just for I suppose to put it bluntly, shits and giggles. You, it's almost like <laughs> it has to be a metaphor. It has to be a metaphor for something. You know, it has to be. You can't just throw a vampire. Yeah, and I think that's almost the definition of a vampire nowadays, is like a sexy metaphor. <laughs> that's what a vampire is. <laughs> Fair, um, enough. Fair enough. And, you know, in, in, modern, in modern shows, especially in sort of the young adult literature for a long time, vampires were always metaphors. They were always metaphors for growing up, for loss of innocence, for, for things like that. There's a very interesting book called The Silver Kiss, and it's all about a, I think it's from the 90s, I could be wrong, but it's about a girl who's, uh, I think her her mother is dying of cancer and it's about her working through her grief. Um, but the way she works through her grief is she has a vampire boyfriend and he kind of helps her get through it. Um, there's also, the, the antagonist is uh, an immortal little boy with a teddy bear who is a vampire and eats people. Um, and the teddy bear has a secret. So it's, it's a very interesting book. But um, the the modern stuff, I think, it just keeps getting reinterpreted in so many amazing different ways that I really don't think vampires are gonna die or <laughs> I suppose anytime soon. Hmm. Well, um, yeah, no pun intended. Definitely, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer is really, really interesting, really wonderful. And to be quite frank, I I'm slightly suspect Buffy might be having a resurgence sometime soon because the 2000s are back baby the 90s 2000s oof oh my god those um hideous sure, outfits sure. that we wore as eight-year-olds height of fashion now and I think it can <laughs> only be a matter of time before um all young young people start getting obsessed with Buffy again and I cannot wait <laughs> um because I've not been able to talk to anyone about how much I love Buffy for a very long time as soon as the TikTok teens discover it, then like, um, yeah, oh, that's yes. when. The TikTok teens are going to go mad for it because yeah, like, fashion in Buffy is amazing. Um, everything about Buffy is amazing. Uh, I should probably <laughs> actually go into Buffy a little bit, um, <laughs> but I don't even know where to start with this. <laughs> um, yeah. Start at the, like, just start, like, start, start, like, you know, like, just kind of give a brief, like, overview okay. of what it is okay yeah okay okay I haven't well seen buffy so try and sell me on buffy <laughs> okay have you have you really not seen buffy or do you just no. want me to sell you this pen no i've literally never seen <laughs> like that buffy. business major meme yeah. um okay tell right. me this so, show so literally the very first shot of buffy is there is a blonde cute uh teenage girl sneaking into the high school at night with her sexy black leather clad boyfriend and she's like oh I'm, I'm so afraid oh can you hold me what was that noise oh I'm so scared and he's like oh don't worry babe I got this and she's like you're sure there's nobody around and he's like yeah sure so she's like, oh that's fantastic she turns around she bites him and that's how Bobby starts it is amazing it completely takes the idea of um you know teenage growth being helpless um, being uh, sort of victims and turns it on his head because, you know, at one point, uh, Buffy, who is 
the main character says, I'm the one that mon- that monsters have nightmares about. And she she never sacrifices her femininity for this. She never stops talking about boys and fashion and clothes. But that doesn't mean she can't also be like tough as nails and can, you mm. know, absolutely murder you with a spoon if she so wished. She's, uh, she's... So, so basically the basic plot of Buffy is that every every generation there is a girl born um one girl in all the world who is destined to protect humanity fight off all the monsters all the demons especially the vampires and basically keep balance of the world sort of like the avatar but like i've never seen avatar (laughs) yeah but um she she's she's very important um in the story but the problem is that a lot of the slayers were trained for this job they you know they they found out very young that they were going to be the slayer and they spent years and years training practicing to accept the responsibility buffy doesn't want any of that she's a teenage girl and she has to juggle you know the fact that she's a slayer and she has this massive responsibility with also wanting to go to parties and hang out with her friends and it keeps getting in the way of everything so there's this constant struggle for her to find almost a work-life balance which i think a lot of people can relate to um and she also has to struggle because again spoilers but it's been out since the 90s is that she her job on this earth her purpose for existing is to kill vampires and to get rid of ev- of that kind of evil. But she ends up falling in love with a vampire. And that's, <laughs> it's very, very complicated uh, drama. And there's also throughout the story woven in kind of me- messages about female empowerment. Um, you know, she, there's a character who starts off very mousy and very timid and very shy, but soon discovers that she actually has a gift for magic and she's an incredibly powerful witch. Um, and later on, you know, she she realizes that she's bisexual or lesbian. It's never really clear which she, she, which she identifies as, but mm. it's, it's very interesting. And she actually, that character has the I think it was like one of the first or the first um openly lesbian relationships on TV um it does go into <laughs> I, I won't go into it a point but um there's a certain amount of barrier gaze on Buffy yeah, yeah. which which I know, which I, I know what you're on about yeah which which I was not happy about at all but um it's it's a great show because every episode is wacky as hell like i've just given you the the basic synopsis of it and it sounds like a high powered sexy drama but really on the surface of it it is just dumb shit happening to teenagers in the 90s and it's hilarious and the special effects are terrible and i absolutely love it there is an episode where their teacher gets eaten by pigs and that's like episode two i think (laughs) Um, There's an episode where the swim team turns out to be like lizard people. There's an episode where a teenage science nerd decides he wants to find the perfect girlfriend. So he starts killing girls um, that he thinks are hot and putting them together into a Frankenstein's monster that's going to be like, that is going to be like, I think the wife to his brother who he reanimated. It's, it's bananas. 
absolutely bananas. Every episode okay, is you're, weirder you're than the last. You're selling me on this more and more. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's an, and also, um, as a warning, there are a lot of dream sequences in Buffy, and there's there's actually sometimes they don't make sense because there's one episode where all the characters are trapped inside their dreams and there's a man there who just keeps showing up with a block of i think is is it like what's swiss cheese yeah if it's swiss cheese is the one with the holes and he just keeps yeah. saying i like cheese and that's like his whole thing and it's the whole episode is just they're all in different dreams and he just keeps popping up saying i like cheese and it's never explained um there's also an episode where buffy is uh in a mental hospital and you're not sure whether the entire shore with the entire show was just a figment of her imagination or what and it's again never explained it's it's amazing like this show is like absolutely batshit bananas crazy and you can't not enjoy buffy (laughs) It's it sounds it to be fair. Honestly, with the dream sequences, I'm kind of like I've watched Twin Peaks. Like I can handle. I, yeah, if you, if you can, handle, can handle, handle Twin Peaks, most, you can I've handle watched Buffy. Most of David Lynch's work now, actually, Bill Twin Peaks isn't even the weirdest. Like, mm-hmm. trust me, by any stretch of the imagination. Mm-hmm. And I've watched the weirdest. Um, the Inland Empire. So I think I can handle Buffy. Yeah. Oh. Don't talk to I, I stopped watching yeah, so- Twin Peaks after like I think like the second episode because there was a bit where they were like running were, were they like in a corridor and the corridor just kept on going and I was like no no I can't handle this I have no memory of this but like I'll <laughs> it was like they, take, they were I'll... running up and down and the corridor was was moving and it was sideways and it was up they were running up the walls and it was like I, I can't I don't understand I'll... I I'll take your I'll take your word for it, but yeah, Inland Empire. <laughs> subscribe subscribe to our Patreon that doesn't exist to hear me talk about Inland Empire. <laughs> yeah, but um, yes, I I highly recommend Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Um, it gets into very serious issues. It gets into you know what happens when you sleep with a guy and his whole personality changes the night the morning after. Um, what happens when you know. You, you know, a family member dies and you have to learn to cope with the grief and responsibility of growing older. What happens when, mm-hmm. you know, like you're you're not in college and your friends are in college and how the dynamics shift. It it tackles so many different issues um, in really interesting ways. And it's not a perfect show. It's 100 percent not a perfect show, um, but it's it's worth checking out. Um, in fact, I don't know if you have seen, but vampires had their own Me Too thing um, recently because the showrunner Joss Whedon got outed as being an incredibly terrible person. <laughs> um, and especially he's, as, he's horrible. He, he is horrible. He's he's really bad, and it's hard because his personality comes through in some parts of the show that are more problematic and his sense of humor is quite prevalent in the show so you can't just divorce him from Buffy but I think if you can if you can you know try to shut down that part of your mind that's like oh my god this actress was being horribly abused when this was being filmed then you might be able to enjoy the show but again that's pretty much like every film ever made in Hollywood had something like that going on behind the scenes but um... even like even Joss Whedon I feel like obviously there's a thing with Buffy and also like the way he like 
directed or partially directed Justice League, one of the actors, Ray Fisher, like, Joss Whedon was, like, so shit to him. Mm. Like, which I saw, and, like, a lot of actresses from Buffy came and, like, you know, stood with Ray Fisher because they were like, yeah, he's he's terrible, like, so... Yeah, the the thing that I didn't like about when, um, when the actress... Uh, I think she was the actress who plays Cordelia Chase in the story. I can't remember her name. I'm so mm-hmm. sorry. But um, that actress was, you know, she came, I think she came out on Twitter and said, he was horrible to me and basically fired me because I got pregnant and, you know, mm. made horrendous comments to me. Um, and then Sarah Michelle Geller, who plays Buffy, um, also uh, Daphne from the Scooby-Doo movies, you know, those live action ones yeah, that are amazing. Yeah, yeah. She, she's great um, iconic, yeah. iconic yeah she came out on online she was like i fully support her i believe her i stand with her and then curiously quite a lot of her male co-stars were pretty quiet about it um which i didn't appreciate i think some of them did eventually say oh yes we support the actress yeah but yeah. i was i was like really really you're not going you're to like oh, come, on, come, on, come on come on now lads like I literally don't have time for this. You you either stand with her or you don't. Like <laughs> don't don't leave us in the dark. Like. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. Um but yeah, so if you can if you can look past that, I, I don't even know if that's the right way to explain it, but if you can look past what's going on there, then um <laughs> then you can really enjoy the show course, and it, course, it's yeah. it's got many, many seasons. Um, there's lots of episodes to to enjoy, some better than others. There's, uh, you know, the whole thing about the musical episodes, um, where like nowadays, mm-hmm. like everyone's trying to do a musical episode. I think Buffy was the first one to ever do that, and their musical episode is bomb. It is so good. It is so funny and so heartbreaking, and the songs are incredible. Like if you're only going to watch one episode of Buffy, watch the musical episode. Naturally, like musical musical episodes in general, just pretty fun. Yeah, they are very fun. Um, I mentioned earlier. I just realized I, I mentioned earlier the Lady of the House of Love, um, and I don't <laughs> think I actually explained that at all because I got sidetracked by Pamela yes. and Dracula. Um, do you want me to go into it briefly? Do we have time, or do you need? Oh yeah, we have. <laughs> no, we have time. You can you can tell us about that. Okay. All right, so I have it in front of me. Um, it's uh, a short story in a collection of short stories by Angela Carter um, called The Bloody Chamber. And the vampire story in it is called The Lady of the House of Love. And so The Bloody Chamber, um, this short story collection, are all fairy tale retellings, but sort of dark and feminist and sort of horror um, horror inspired. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they're incredibly interesting. But in the story, um, the Lady of the House of Love is a very interesting female vampire. She's uh, she, she's described as uh, uh, wearing an antique bridal gown. The beautiful queen of the vampires sits alone in her dark high house under the eyes of the portraits of her demented and atrocious ancestors. Which is like that's a great way to start. <laughs> I love that. Um, she's she wears um, you know she wears this old wedding dress. Uh, she mopes about a castle. She's very gloomy, but there's this whole story about love in it that's really interesting and about how love can 
transform you love can kill you <laughs> love can bring you back to life you know it's it's incredibly interesting because so she she is like the typical gothic dark female vampire um and she's conflicted about what she does she you know she she feels bad she doesn't stop her eating the peasant boys though at all but she she does feel a bit guilty about I mean, it when she's you know cleaning her fangs but one day um she she does actually genuinely fall in love and um what happens is so every day she sits at the she sits at a table in her dark room and she has to wear sort of dark sunglasses sort of John Lennon sunglasses because her eyes are so delicate um they're like little purple lenses and such a gothic such a cool sort of 70s image there um and she she sits at the table every single day and shuffles her tarot cards and every single time she shuffles her tarot cards she gets the same uh she gets the same deck she well same deck she gets the same three cards show up which is i think ellen. love love was ellen Sorry? this woman who like this woman who like you know she shuffles her tarot cards every day is she you <laughs> yeah are you one are you one in the same <laughs> <laughs> yes um i just outed myself as a vampire on the podcast god damn it the, the it was always it was always leading up to this yeah literally um but yeah so she, she literally shuffles the tarot cards every day and it's the same three cards that come up every single time which is uh la papesse la mort la tour abeli um which is like i think love death no uh the the female pope death and the tower but one day she shuffles the cards and uh love comes up and she never expected that it was the lovers come up Ooh. and so her fate just changes and it it's kind of interesting because she's in this super gothic atmosphere and um the the young man who shows up at her castle he has a bicycle and he's he's a young englishman who is completely clueless complete idiot he's just like everyone is so strange and foreign they keep saying don't go to the castle oh silly superstitious peasants <laughs> i'm english i'm so much smarter than them because i know science and he probably gets seduced by the female vampire and she is about to lead him to her bedroom where she is going to kill him she thinks oh something really nice is going to happen because you know a sexy woman leading you to her bedchamber but no she's ready to kill him but then all of a sudden he kisses her and she's like oh. holy shit <laughs> i i can't do this anymore and it's like this it's basically supposed to be sleeping beauty he wakes her up from her sleep of death with a kiss but oh. the thing is because she has experienced this cuz she's experienced love she can't keep going on as she is she can't you know um she can't choose to be anything else and so she she dies he wakes up the next morning and she's just gone and all that she leaves behind is a beautiful rose and the roses in the story are really important because they are described in almost a very sexual way which is very strange that they're almost like you know the Giorgio O'Keeffe paintings where um they're very <laughs> sort of suggestively shaped um and they mm-hmm. have like, incredibly heavy fragrance they're like very um seductive and beautiful but he has this rose um that sh- that she has left for him and he takes it back to his rooms in the garrison because he- he's he's a soldier he's 
preparing for war and he puts yeah, it yeah. in he he puts it in um water and suddenly it comes back to life and it has a second life even though she's dead but literally the story ends with he's like huh that was really strange you know i was going to take her to the dentist because she had such weird teeth um but then <laughs> he he he's like okay well nothing bad's going to happen now i've escaped the vampires i brought my dentistry okay off to my new job and then it says at the very end of the story let me find it um uh next day he embarked for france and it is very heavily implied that he's about to fight in world war 1 so <laughs> it's it's kind of funny oh, because oh, okay he he has a massive yikes there yeah <laughs> he he has just survived vampires he has just survived the supernatural but he can't escape his fate He can't escape war, and you know the cards that she did pull up were, you know, uh, the female pope, which is like the symbol of um, female power, I think, uh, love, yeah. but death. Death came up every single time. So, okay. yeah, it's it's really interesting story. There's a lot to unpack in that story, and I love it because it's just so beautifully written. You know, there's um, there's I I heard that Angela Carter when she when she got the inspiration for it she was bored in her room and she had a pen and she was running the pen along the bars of her radiator and just you know the click 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 of it reminded yeah. her of like long fingernails running across the bars of a cage and so she got the inspiration for the story and in the story there's a recurring motif of um a bird in a cage that's in the lady of the house of love her that vampire's room and she keeps saying can a bird learn a new song or can it only sing the song that it knows and she keeps asking that question at the end you are kind of left with it because is the young man going to keep singing his song of like war and being so self-assured or is the war going to change him or is he just going to die <laughs> we don't know um we don't know i love that i love that because again vampires are always metaphors for something they're always representations of something hidden something deeper in our psyche in human nature in in nature itself it's it's so fascinating and can be reinterpreted endlessly you ask the obligatory question of like where do you think the vampire genre is going where do you think the vampire genre is going because you said yourself like they're not going they're not leaving like like where hmm. do you, what do you think it's going to be like in the future or or do you know like, That's a tough question because there are so many ways it could go. You know, um it's I think vampires in many ways have been used again like I said from as metaphors, but it's usually a metaphor to do with the the current topics, you know, what what, what would you say like are the current issues today? You know, there's climate change, there's feminism, there's black lives matter, there's I suppose covid. <laughs> Um uh, one thing I actually was thinking about today was how vampires are always associated with pandemics. Um at least originally um you know in when was it uh in the 1700s and the early 1800s in New England there was a massive vampire panic because ter- tuberculosis broke out and nobody knew what was causing it. and if one person Oof. in your family got sick the rest of them would slowly get sick too and you would literally just waste away until you died 
And um, it's it's very interesting because I wonder, is there going to be sort of a COVID um, reinterpretation of vampires? You know, um, like it Mm -hmm. is something sort of invisible that can attack you and you don't even know and it can spread throughout your family and it's it's quite scary it's it's something that you can't really control or you can't really protect yourself from you can get the vaccine you can you can do your best um to protect Mm -hmm. yourself but at the end of the day like you're kind of at the mercy (laughs) of this sort of strange force and that's a lot like vampires in some way it's a lot like how people have been dealing with illness for a very long time um so that's one thing I think could happen in the future is that they could be used as a metaphor for COVID. Um, but in terms of um, where where it's going now, I do know that there are some very exciting books coming out. There's one book that has just come, I think it's, it's just come out or, no, I think it's coming out in November, is it? Um, by Renee Adia, which I think, uh, let me see if I can find the name of it, but it's being republished because the publisher um, the publisher uh, ran out. Or, or was it Renee Garcia? I'm sorry, I should have researched this. Um, you're grand, you're grand. Idea. Um, but she, she, uh, her, her vampire book like was very well received at the time, but it's it hasn't uh, it hasn't stayed in print because the publisher went uh, bankrupt. I think it was, but she's got a new book. She's got a new book coming out, which I think is really going to be like a smash hit. Um, and if I can find the name on Google, I will tell you. <laughs> um, one second, vampire. Oh, the amount of times I've typed vampire into Google. Um, uh, no. Uh, goodness, was it? Sylvia Gracia Moraz. Um, but yes, so basically there's there's going to be, I think, some oh, really interesting... Mexican Gothic lady. Yes, I think that's her. Um, Sylvia Morena Garcia. Um, I think she has a book coming out about vampires that she had previously published. And it's going to be, I think it's going to be really big. Um, and I think it's going to become... Maybe not the new Twilight, but I think it might kickstart the genre a bit. And I think it's certain dark things. Yeah, it's certain dark things. It's a pulse-pounding neo-noir that reimagines vampire lore. Welcome to Mexico City, an oasis in the sea of vampires. Um, So I'm pretty sure that when certain dark things comes out, we're all going to hear about it. Really, (laughs) a lot. (laughs) And I'm very, very excited. I'm sorry that took me a while to, to figure out which book it was because I was... Between between a few, but uh, I think the reason I was thinking of Renee Adia was because she has a book um, series called Beautiful, and it's very very good. She also has there's a sequel called The Damned, so it's literally like The Beautiful and The Damned, which is amazing. I love that. Um, Yeah, when when the next when certain dark things comes out, that's when Ellen's gonna come back for part two. (laughs) <laughs> yes, and you're not going to be able to get me to shut up just like this time. <laughs> um, that's but, that's yeah. ideal. Like that is ideal. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think there's going to definitely be more big books come out in the vampire genre. I don't think vampires are finished. I think you know people might get a bit tired of YA vampires after a while. They might be kind of craving 
at the moment, I think at least they might kind of be craving horror because we've had the romance for so long. We've had sort of the the Edward Collins and um, the sort of uh, who's who's who is the guy with the big hair from Vampire Diaries? I haven't seen all of Vampire Diaries. Oh, but um, you know, Stephen Damon Salvatore. Salvatore. Is he the guy who like always makes that weird face and gifs? Um I, I think yeah, my I've I haven't really seen the show, but um I think we've had those fellas with their their lovely ripped shirts and you know their sparkles for so long. I think people are really craving a bit of horror and a bit of darkness and a bit of gothicness with their vampires. Mm, um, absolutely. Not to say I don't adore romantic vampires. I completely do. Of course, but of course. I think that's where it's headed for now. I think it's going to be maybe metaphors about COVID, climate change. Um, definitely, uh, I think there's going to be more books come out that see vampires as a metaphor for maybe capitalism and metaphors for social injustice. Because mm. originally, in in many ways. That's what vampires were being used as metaphors for. You know, they were being used very, very early on as metaphors for, you know, how the rich upper classes, the the aristocrats, would feed on the people underneath them, the peasants, the the people, the working poor, really. Um, so that could totally translate well to modern day. Honestly, like no harm because the idea of like a vampire COVID story sounds very interesting. But also, <laughs> I feel like I feel like the day someone writes a story about vampires and COVID or about anything of COVID, I, that's what I'm done. Mm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, I was I was just I thinking <laughs> as well. Um, one of the cures that they so you know how nowadays people are saying. Um, weird cures for COVID. Um, there, one of the cures for tuberculosis, which is closely linked to uh, to vampires, because when people got tuberculosis, <laughs> they, they often would also be a vampire panic at the same time, because the symptoms were like, oh, they're wasting away from mysterious illness. It must be, uh, it must be vampires. Um, yeah, but, yeah. But, but yeah, so um, one of the cures for tuberculosis was literally to go horseback riding and now people with COVID are eating horse medicine. So I think maybe horses also should be in there somewhere. Honestly, yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah, um, I just think it's funny how both both things use horses as a cure. <laughs> when they really shouldn't be, because I'm pretty sure if you went horseback riding with tuberculosis, doing nothing for you. Yeah, it wouldn't go well. Gonna say, Nigel, do you have any last questions? Uh, not really. Now, I feel like, I feel like there's so much more we could say about vampires, um, but at the same time, it's like, you know, that could be another two hours, um. <laughs> yeah. So I'm not like I'm not sure what I want to ask that would not, um, you know, end up with Ellen spending the rest of her night talking to us about vampires I, like i mean i presume she would like to do that but also i presume she has other things she'd like to to do with I her time absolutely do not <laughs> oh very well I'm then sitting, um, i'm just sitting alone in my antique bridal gown counting tarot cards did you not hear what ellie said true yeah i mean vampires don't really um, need to sleep other than like for dramatic effect right 
Mm, yeah, that that's true. I mean, we do just spend an awful lot of time in our coffins. Um, but yeah, <laughs> yeah, we should we should probably cut it off there before I um start talking about <laughs> something completely unrelated <laughs> and make it another several Honest- hours. Honestly, um, most episodes of the podcast. But um, that's it for now. <laughs> we can wrap it up. <laughs> Ellen, where can we? Where can we? Ellen, where can we find you? Um, I am on Instagram at funnymoon seventy seven, all lowercase. Um, and please, for the love of God, do not find me on Tumblr because I post <laughs> so much dumb shit there. Do not follow me on Tumblr. That's what I'm asking. Um, but if yeah, you've seen uh, Ellen's Tumblr, no, you haven't. <laughs> no, you haven't. Um, it's it's mostly just memes about being Irish because every so often I'm like, why are there no Irish memes? Um, but yes, I'm I'm on valid, Instagram. Valid. Um, I'm I'm on Facebook with my full name. If you want to stalk me or your family member who's you know trying to get in contact with me, um, but <laughs> I'm not I'm not I'm not a very social media person. Um, I'm I spend most of my time on social media on Pinterest because I'm a forty year old mother. Obviously, <laughs> valid, I'm not a twenty one. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yes, no, please don't, don't stalk me online. <laughs> please, do, please do not stalk Ellen online. Please and thank you. Nigel, where can we find yeah. you? Uh, you can find me on, mainly on Twitter, um, at SpicyNigel, where, you know, I'm just tweeting things. I've been thinking of memes that I should post on Twitter. Um, but also, I've just, I've been completely um, blindsided by the fact that they're releasing an animated Diary of a Wimpy Kid film on Disney Plus. What? Don't talk what? to me about. It. Don't talk to me no! about. No. Oh no. Oh no. no. Your reaction says it all, Ellen. No. Oh God. I want to take out my eyes. The original. I, I... The original movie was. The original movies were the best. Hot Roderick were or they? Bust. Were, were they? Because I remember reading the books and being like, "What is this drivel?" The movies <laughs> were. The, the movies were iconic. Okay, but like not Dyer a fucking animated. Okay, but Dire Wimpy Kid is like down here, but Captain Underpants is up here. So I will, I will admit that Captain Underpants is uh, like is superior to most works of literature. Like I That's don't really true. think it's like it's better than Dire Wimpy Kid, but it's also better than like a lot of things. Like it's like have personally, you seen I mean, it's, it's better than War. It's better than War and mm-hmm. Peace. Um, <laughs> Oh, oh, 100%. I would much rather read Captain Underpants than War and Peace. Tolstoy was a dick. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> anyway, it's not what we're here to talk about. <laughs> we're not going to go into how much uh, Tolstoy was a dick. Um, we should we should, yeah. we should, let Finn know that the outro to this one has been completely derailed as well. <laughs> <laughs> you, yes, can f- um, you can find me uh, on Twitter at alicat underscore. Ali spelled like alleyway, cat spelled with a K. And you can find me on Instagram at ali, A-L-L-Y underscore K underscore Keegan. You can find the podcast at hyperfixationsp on Twitter. Or at HyperfixationsPod on Instagram. Rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts, be that Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or on a letter from your lover with an Ottawa address, wherever. If you would like to talk to us about one of your hyperfixations, please feel free to reach out to us at any of the aforementioned social media. Lovely. Ellen, it was an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I had so much fun. Bye, everyone. Stay tuned for part two.
<laughs> I'm signing off.